We are in chapter 6 of Revelation. Uh, We started here a few weeks back. And if you'll remember that John had this vision of the heavenly worship with God the Father sitting on the throne. And we know it's not just of heaven. It's not just of the universe, as some people would say it. But it's the very center of existence, period. And that it exists in a reality. It's a different realm than the one that we find ourselves in for the most part. Uh, But we know it's as real as the real is around us. And the, the Lamb of God who was slain had made an appearance and uh, that he had now had, had come and he had taken that book or scroll with the seven seals and that he was the one who was worthy to, to break those seals and to open the scroll and he's the only one in all of existence that is worthy of doing that. But he had come to the Father and he had taken that scroll and he had broken where we left off last week, the first four of those seals. And uh, we acknowledge that the first of these four horsemen of the apocalypse is so often called. The first horseman being very often called conquest and the second one being war and the third one famine and the last one death and one of the things that I really meant to emphasize last week and I didn't do that is this is we have to understand that these four horsemen have come forth as of a result of the bidding of God as a commandment of God that God is the one that has sent these forces forth into the world to to conquest and to wage war and to have famine and death, and we need to understand something uh, that these things are instruments of God's judgment already in effect upon the sinfulness of man as it has made this world to be. That there is, in a sense, a partial judgment that is taking place now, and it's been taking place ever since the Garden of Eden. That this is according to God's perfect will and purpose. In other words, I hope you don't think for a minute that these things are instruments that Satan has pushed or sent out upon the world to cause havoc and all of that amongst us. We need to understand that this is all according to the perfect will and purpose uh, of God himself. So we come to verse 9 where... Jesus is about to open the fifth one of those seals. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou restrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a while longer until the number of their fellow servants 
and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And for the great day of their wrath has come, who is able to stand it? The term martyr doesn't appear in the scripture here, uh, but we understand that this is what is being pictured here. Uh, It's the souls of the martyrs. Uh, have left this earth and they've ascended into this this throne room and uh, they are present there. And you can imagine what that message would be for those members of those seven churches where people in their midst, some of their friends sometimes and some of their family had actually given their lives for the advancement of the gospel. And you can imagine what relief it would be for them to read this, to hear this, that even though they've died, they are very much alive. There's some question about which altar is being referred to here because we know in the tabernacle and the temple there were two different ones. One was the the altar of burnt offerings where they did the sacrifices. The other one was the altar of incense. Which, uh, which they burned incense perpetually, and it was right before the veil separated that separated the most holy place from the holy of holies, or the holy place from the holy of holies. Uh, and it symbolized the, the, uh, the prayers of the saints, the incense being raised up into heaven to be a sweet, sweet aroma, uh, to the Lord, there's an argument to be given for each one because, in a sense, these are people that we know uh, were sacrificed. They gave their life for Jesus. But here they are in heaven. And I want you to notice that they are in close proximity to Jesus. They're not, there's no one that separates them from Jesus at this point. None of the angels, none of the seraphim, not the elders, not anyone. That they're as close to the throne as you can possibly get without sitting on it. They are there with their Lord Jesus Christ. And he hears them. All the time. Perhaps the Apostle John has some recognition from some of those souls that he sees in this vision. He had a brother named James. He was also one of the 12 apostles. He's the first martyr that we have recorded in Scripture. 
He was killed by Herod because he was telling people about Jesus. It could be that Polycarp, remember Polycarp, the, 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 the bishop of Smyrna who was martyred when he was 80 years old. His soul is there. Antipas of Pergamum mentioned also in the letter to that particular church. Think about this. If the book of Revelation, like we really believe, was written later in the century, all of the other apostles are there already. I don't know how much you know about the apostles. Because the scripture really doesn't tell us much. It tells us how John died, but it doesn't tell us how any of the rest of them died. Or when they died, or where they were when they died. So we have to rely completely upon historical documents to establish our understanding of these things. But I just want to mention a few of these. We we know this. We know that Peter was crucified in Rome around 64 A.D., right about the same time the Apostle Paul was beheaded in Rome. Andrew was crucified in Petrus, Greece, around 69 A.D. Philip was hanged around 60 A.D. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Thomas was speared in India. James, son of Alphaeus, was stoned in Jerusalem. Thaddeus was clubbed to death in Turkey. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Iran. Others, Matthias, remember the, the, uh, uh, the apostle that took Judas Iscariot's place. He was burned to death in Ethiopia. Barnabas, who accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey, was stoned to death in Cyprus in 61 A.D. John Mark, the writer of the gospel, companion to Paul and to Peter, was trampled to death in Alexandria, Egypt in A.D. 68. Luke, the physician, was hanged in Rome in 91 A.D. Timothy was beheaded in Ephesus in 90 A.D. And the list could go on and on and on. No women mentioned there, but you need to understand that there were women that were martyred in the early church. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I would encourage you to do it. It's one of those extra biblical works that I think really has uh, a lot of information there that's important to us as believers. These examples of people who gave their lives, and very often in the early days, it was simply because they refused to bow their knee to Caesar and they continued to declare that Jesus was their Lord and their Savior. And we've seen that reflected over and over again as we studied those seven letters to those seven churches. But a woman named Perpetua who died early on, gored to death, were gored by a bull first, not killed, but then killed by gladiators. 
I read a paper the other day, and it was very moving. You know, there's some degree of speculation to it and all of that, but the author was speculating that since 3, 33 A.D., that 39 million Christians have been martyred in this world. Thirty-nine million of our brothers and sisters. So what I'm telling you is there's a whole lot of space under that altar. There are a lot of souls, there are a lot of spirits that are there. When Lori and I went to Uganda, I don't know if you've know that much about what took place in Uganda in the 70s and 80s with Idi Amin and all of that. But there was what was called the Ugandan Holocaust. Christianity was very deeply entrenched in Uganda. Many of our brothers and sisters were, were murdered in that place. Some of them were tortured. Lori and I, when we were in Kampala the first time, we stayed in a, in, in a place called the Nile Hotel which was probably one of the nicest places we've ever stayed in our whole lifetime. But during the reign of Idi Amin, it was called his torture palace. It's where he took people and tortured them to death. And very often they were Christians. Again, notice their close proximity to the throne of Christ. They are his beloved, most precious possession. They're crying out. There's lots of, there's a number of different Greek words that can be translated as crying out. This is an, uh, actually an unusual one to be used. It's not the most common words that we translate as crying out or calling out. The, the, the thing that makes it distinctive is this, is it means crying out, calling out extremely loudly. In other words, John not only sees this in this vision, these souls, he also hears them. And we know that Jesus hears them as well. And what they are doing over and over again is they're crying out to him for justice to be served. How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Very often we think of heaven as just this wonderful place, you know, that, and, and we have this idea that the spirits of people and some people have the idea that it's all people, that when we die we just go to this heavenly paradise and all of that, but we need to understand something that the, the spirits, the souls of these who those who have been martyred are not in that place where they are absolutely, totally, perfectly, no doubt about it, comforted. They 
that there's a sense in which they're mourning. They're given white robes, and we've talked a lot about white in the Bible, not just in Revelation, but all over the Bible. White is representative of purity, of holiness, sometimes thought of as the righteous cloak of Christ placed upon us. Jesus has not responded to their pleas in the sense of doing something yet. He encourages them to not be anxious in a sense, not or to be patient. That that time will in fact come. He encourages them just to rest for a little while longer. People are always asking me, when do I think Jesus is coming back? And other times people will say, well, what do you think, why do you think Jesus hasn't come back yet? And in this verse before us this morning, I think probably the very best answer you're going to find in all of Scripture is here. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. We need to understand something. That is, we're speaking right now, as the words are coming out of my mouth, more than likely there is a believer living in this world who is dying simply because he is a believer or she is a believer in Jesus Christ. The martyrdom has gone on and on in every generation. And it will continue on until the time that Jesus returns. There's a remote possibility that one or two of us or some of us may in our lifetime be given the opportunity to give our life for the cause of the gospel. Doesn't seem, it seem very likely, doesn't seem hardly probable in any sense of the word that it's going to be true of any of us, but there's a possibility and we can see as the culture around us is becoming more and more anti-Christian and anti-God, that that possibility is growing. And we've seen Christians attacked verbally. It happens all the time. Belittled publicly, etc., etc., etc. Politicians are just raked over the coals because they are willing to profess Jesus to the people that they have influence over. It's not inconceivable that, that one of these days, that even in the good old United States, that there will be Christians that are martyred for their faith just simply because they speak for Christ and they refuse to stop under the threat of death. A definite possibility. The voice of the martyrs is always heard in heaven. And Jesus never turns a deaf ear to them. Well, what about this? We know that there have been some mass shootings in churches in more recent years. 
there was a church in Texas just last year, I think it was, when the, there was a, you know, an assassin with a, a, a gun that came in and started killing people in a church. And I can't remember how many died. Would you classify those people as martyrs? I would because they died because they were practicing their faith. They were in the wrong place, or they were in the right place at the wrong time, if you want to put it that way. More than one church shooting over the years, you can remember the one that took place with the Amish children a number of years ago, and remember the response of the Amish people mystified the world because theirs was a message of forgiveness. A little while longer. Jesus won't come back until it's all done with. No matter how much we hope for it, no matter how much we pray for it. It's all being worked out according to his perfect purpose and plan. We may think it's time for him to come back right now. That doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus thinks it's time for him to come back right now. And I looked and he broke the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake. This is a mega earthquake. You need to understand that. It's not your typical everyday run-of-the-mill earthquake. I'm not so sure that wouldn't be a good idea for everyone to experience an earthquake at some time in their lifetime. Because it is like nothing else you will ever experience in your lifetime. Some of you have. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you have not. But there are a few things that we can count on the world for being really solid, right? And the principal one is the earth itself. And when the, the earth itself begins to shake and rumble, it'll put the fear in you like nothing else will. But you need to realize that this is a mega earthquake. This is way beyond any earthquake that has ever hit the earth before. It is so strong that it will displace mountains from their place. What you're going to find really here is when this sixth seal is broken is that all hell breaks loose on the earth. I hate to be blunt, but that's what it sounds like. What it sounds very much like is the final day of judgment where Jesus is going to sit on his white throne and he's going to judge the nations. And I believe that's exactly what it is. It's not some prejudgment. That this is a picture of the judgment that's going to fall upon the nations at the time of second coming of Jesus. 
And here it is in chapter 6 of Revelation, and we've got a long way to go to get to the end. How can that be true? It can be true because, as we said, the best way of understanding this book is not as one vision that goes on and there's just all these things in chronological order that are going to unfold, but it really is better understood as seven separate visions that cover generally the same stuff over and over again. This great earthquake, the sun becomes black as sackcloth. Now, let me just say something. We had, a, we had a solar eclipse last year, and Amber and Edge took the kids, and they went up there so they could be in the dark. But was it perfectly dark, Gloria? No. You need to understand something, that a solar eclipse, a total solar eclipse, will not cut out all the light coming from the sun. Now, we're talking about something that goes on beyond that because when you get into this kind of stuff, very often people will start talking about, well, it's describing a solar eclipse. It's not describing a solar eclipse. It's talking about the the sun's light being completely, absolutely extinguished. Whammo, bammo, gone. There's been nothing like it ever The whole moon became like blood. Now, you've heard of blood moons before, probably. That's, that's what's created when we have lunar eclipses, when the, when the earth gets between the, the sun and, and the moon. And, and what you're seeing and when it turns red is basically the shadow of the earth uh, that is on the moon. It has to do with different wavelengths of light refracting to different degrees as, it, as they hit the atmosphere. That's what causes it to have a red look to it. But we understand that it's not really, even though it looks reddish, it's really not reddish in color. The moon, in a sense, is just like this big white reflector mirror thing that's up there, right? Stars falling from the sky. Now, we know that... the. the we know that if the sun crashed into the earth, it would, I mean, the sun is just, the stars are humongous compared to earth, right? So we're not going to, it's not going to come a day when we literally see stars falling into the earth. It only takes one, and it would just absolutely obliterate, crush the earth into dust, period. I mean, how much bigger is just our sun than the earth is? There's hardly any compare. You can put a million earths in the sun. That's how much bigger it is. So what's it referring to? Well, if you look at Scripture, what you'll find is very often the falling of stars is used as an analogy for angels falling. Isaiah chapter 14. Talking about basically Lucifer falling from grace. Jesus talks about uh, when he sent out the 70 in, 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 in Luke. He sent them out to spread the gospel and do this and do that. And when they came back, they were telling me about all this. And he said, you know, I saw the stars falling from the sky.
stars falling from the sky. I mean, in a, in a literal sense of the word, it's just something that we've never seen anything like it. You need to understand some things, and that is that one of the things is this, is that, that, that John here is trying to put into human language that's understandable by people things that are of God that are beyond our comprehension. In other words, as, as, as great as we might picture that earthquake as being, nothing we come to will come close to what reality will be. It's beyond our greatest imagination. The sky split apart like a scroll. The mountains and the islands being moved out of their places. Well, what about the people on earth? What about the kings of the earth? The great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man. Remember how those seraphim responded being in the holy presence of God. They worship him perpetually. Remember the elders. They fall down before him and they worship him perpetually. You think about the myriads and myriads of angels. What do they do? They fall down and they worship God unrelentingly. Now we have men who don't. When his presence is made known in a way that you can no longer deny that he exists. All people will eventually know that there is a God. That he is real. Everyone, without exception, will come to that knowledge. These are people who refuse to repent. You're a believer when you see Jesus. If, he, if he, Jesus were to come today, if he, the sign appeared in the clouds of glory as he says that he will come, if you saw that, you would rejoice in it if you're a believer. If you're not, it will scare the bejeebies out of you. When Jesus comes back, there's nobody on planet earth that is going to doubt for one minute that there's a God any longer. And they're not going to doubt for one minute that that God has descended upon this little planet. See, this is one of the saddest things of all. And that is there there are people who are are so lost in their sins, so abstinent 
in their defiance of God, their hatred of God, that even when he's right in their face, they continue to deny him. They would rather have shaking rocks and mountains fall on them and crush them than to repent of their sin and acknowledge God, God's rightful place as the ruler of all things and themselves. The one that they are utterly and absolutely accountable to. Which is true of all people. Described as the great day of their wrath. How can you understand that to be anything less than the great day of judgment that's still coming? Years ago, Jonathan Edwards in 1741 preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to. It is not one of those comfy, cozy, feely kind of sermons that we very often get in church today. It is the premier hellfire and brimstone sermon that possibly has ever been preached by anybody other than Jesus or the apostles. It's about God's judgment. And he likens people to being dangling over hell by nothing but a spider, a thread of spider web. And God is the only thing that keeps them from falling. Now, let me just tell you, it's not a really great exposition of the particular text. But if it doesn't get your attention, nothing else will. We had a girl years ago who came to be interviewed for membership, and we asked her, you know, where do you think you're going and, you know, why and, and whatever. And she said, well, I'm going to heaven because I don't want to go to that other place. See, we don't talk about that other place much. Not much in the church today. You're going to be hard-pressed to find many sermons where people are talking actively and openly about hell and God's judgment and things like that in most of the churches in the good old U.S. of A. today. See, our culture is turned in on themselves. You know, it's all about me. That's what it comes down. We're their all-about-me culture. We care about me. And it's the characteristic of our whole culture that makes... There's not a, there are exceptions to it. You need to understand that. But this is one of the reasons why young people today have so many problems to some degree is that is they're encouraged to believe that it's all about me. Everything is about me. Everything is about how this, that, or the other affects me. And I don't care about anything else. Just those things that are going to, you know, shake my little world up a little bit. Those are the things that I'm concerned about. 
Let me tell you something, guys. There have been people that have been scared into heaven. It's not going to happen if we don't talk about hellfire and brimstone much. There's two different ways to skin the cat. We talk about Jesus' love all the time. Just remember, Jesus is the judge. This is all according to his will, his perfect will, his perfect service. So there's a sense that we've covered most of the high points of the book of Revelation at this point. Do you understand that? Now, there's going to be a lot of more details that come out as we continue through here, but we've covered the overall picture of the book of Revelation at this point. And we're going to continue on. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. 